You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the web website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Early last month, Chris interviewed me about what a buyer's agent does and how we can add value. So now I'm going to return serve. I'm going to interview Chris. But this isn't simply what does a mortgage broker do and why should you use one conversation. This is driven by something I've been seeing a lot with my clients at the moment. Many of my clients have private bankers and start their property search by getting finance pre-approval directly through their existing bank. Now, it seems logical, which of course is why they do it. However, increasingly, we've been coming up against obstacles with these approvals. So I wanted to quiz Chris as to why these issues are coming up and what the real benefit is in using a broker versus relying on these long-standing relationships. Well, I, well, I look forward to this. I haven't prepared anything, which is uh, you know good for me. I have to just be able to rock up, so let's let's do it. So you want to know what I've been coming across? Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. So numerous times a client has been told that they'd have no problem getting finance to a certain level and then found once they submitted paperwork that the reality is significantly different. And I'm talking here about clients who have been banking with a particular institution. This is not just one bank I'm talking about. This has happened across many banks that they've got all of their, their sort of personal accounting with that or banking, I should say, with that institution their borrowings, everything. So they've got a fairly transparent understanding of their position and yet then there's become sort of almost like a procedural hurdle that they've got to overcome and that's just put the cat amongst the pigeons and meant that what they expected to be the case just wasn't going to be the case. Yep. So, I mean, this has happened with a client just recently. Uh, he came to us and he's, you know, he's already kind of quite capped on servicing and I looked at the numbers um, and Ben ran the numbers as well. And we went, you know what, I reckon we could probably only get you say 700 on top of what you've got. Um, and he's like, well, CBA have offered me 900. And I said, well, if you can get 900 at CBA, go there, right? Because um, I just don't think that's possible. Now, and I said to him, have you got that in writing? He said, no, 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 but they've kind of said it over the phone. So I said, well, let me know how you go. That was in November, um, middle of December, I touched base, said, how's it going? He goes, oh, I know they're still working on it. Um, and, you know, Fast forward a few months later, we've actually just got him approved literally this week with a new vowel and things like that. Um, but for what we told we could get him because the CBA couldn't come through with it. Now, I think what happens is there's people in the branches who want to be yes people and want to promise um, that they can do things to win the client, but they haven't got the grasp and the credit knowledge to foresee issues that could pop up. Um that they might not have the evidence for. So there might be only casual employment for a little bit or the bonus might only be one year, not two years or um, 
they might not know how to read a self-employed customer or et cetera. So what happens is they do their initial numbers and it looks great, but they can't, they don't, they miss a step or they miss a number and, or they don't even do the numbers properly. So I've seen this a lot. Um, clients say they've got pre-approval, but it's really only a bank staff or a private bank, which is an interesting one. Um, saying they're willing to do the money, but they haven't got an actual pre-approval. They've only got an email or something like that. Um, yeah. An actual pre-approval has, um, has gone through credit and credit has signed off on it and you've sent all your paperwork off, um, et cetera. It's a big difference. Yeah. And what I'm starting to see, a lot of my clients are starting to see, is that when they quiz the, the person they're dealing with in the bank, often they've actually got a fairly junior staff member with not a lot of experience, as you've, as you've mentioned, that can sort of foresee where the hurdles are going to be. And often yeah. they're not even that fully uh, fully versed in actually the bank's policy. So they don't even know what to do next in a way. So this has been something that we've come across and I've been quite shocked because these are some of these are very large loans. Um, and we've had... Yeah, great. So the, the banking model, though, is, is in any business, if you're good and you're a gun and you've got talent... Um, you don't stay in your seat for long, right? So you go into a branch and you might find the mortgage broker at, you know, Sydney, George Street, right? Um, they've been there for a year. If they're good, they move into private banking or they move into another branch of CBA or they move into and, – and so it's hard to hold a relationship down with someone who's just stuck in a branch because um, the good ones get moved on. They get up pushed up through the organisation. And yeah. so a lot of what you do is you have a lot of turnover of staff. There's pros and cons to it. Sometimes they do understand the policy – um, but they don't understand what other banks have got in terms of where their policy differences are. Um, and so when I was working in the banks in, from a financial planning sense, I only knew my bank's products. Now, I didn't know really how good they were compared to, in this case, it was like Barclays or Royal Bank Scotland, etc. I only knew what Santander had. And so this is where a lot of, I guess, uh, I guess brokers in branches don't really understand that sometimes they can borrow more money if they go to other banks they can sometimes get better rates, obviously. Um, they can potentially do structuring things differently um, in terms of relocation loans and um, interest only different periods and things like that. So, you know, it's not all banks are the same, not all policy, not credit policy, etc. So when you go to a branch, you have to conform to what they offer you. And sometimes that's not the best op option for you, obviously, in terms of all the banks out there. So there's issues with the person that you're dealing with in terms of the limitations of their experience and knowledge, there's issues with the limitations of a bank only being able to offer their products to you. Um, and then there's the limitations of um, the nature of a corporation such as a bank where a talented staff member is not going to retain that, we're well, not going to remain in a, in a position very long. They're going to be, they're going to work their way up through the ranks. Um, yeah. So therefore the relationships, you know, they call them a relationship manager and, um, you know, in the years that I've had relationship managers, I've had one really good one. And yes, you're right. He didn't last in that job very long. And all the others are pretty ordinary. Um, and so they were there for a while and I've, I actually stopped talking to them. <laughs> so, mm. um, so, so that, that's sort of an interesting in terms of the whole banking um, process. But I think also you touched on something there about policy change because it's not just the bank's policy. Um, it's not like they set a policy and that's it. They seem to change them quite regularly, right? Yeah, and we're starting to see changes this week, which is pretty horrible that certain professions and certain industries the banks don't want to lend to because 
you know, let's say it's hospitality or let's say it's so tourism and things like that. The direct um, the coronavirus are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. So, like, these are changes where the banks are saying, well, if you do work in these industries, we don't want you as customers, right? So, um, but, the, you know, that's, I guess, um, you know, has changed today, but through the 2018 downturn, et cetera, banks were changing policy almost weekly, you know, de-risking, um, no longer doing interest-only loans, you know, changing policy around bonuses, overseas investors, etc. So policy is always shifting. We get email updates from all the lenders as soon as they make a policy change and it might be like St. George and no longer um, doing casual employment less than three months, let's oh, say. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, every single client, you know, you know, when I asked Ben, I said, well, who are we using? He goes, so-and-so. And I said, what about this? He goes, no, because of X, Y, Z. So that's where we kind of are always figuring out who's the best bank. The other thing that's really interesting is, um, a client literally, uh, a different buyer's agent um, bought through and the buyer's agent referred me a client this week and um, he said, uh, he said I'll, I'll give you a call at 9 a.m. in the morning. I called him at 9 a.m. He didn't answer and he sent me an email at 5 o'clock last night or maybe it was Tuesday night and I, he said, oh, we're going directly to NAB. Now, what he doesn't realise is that NAB um, right now have a 20-day turnaround for that file to get upset, uh, uh, assessed. So he's got maybe a six-week settlement. Now, if he hasn't, if he doesn't keep on top of NAB right now for 20 days turnaround, yeah, plus he's got to get loan docs, plus he's got to get him signed, and he might have complication, he might not, he might be a clean skin. So he should, because of the offshoring, a lot of country, countries over, right around the world have got limited ability to assess and produce loan docs. And so a lot of the banks, you can't turn around applications fast. So Yeah, and I've, look, I've heard this. Um, I was talking to another broker yesterday who was saying that St George has also got a 20-day turnaround yep. um, and it seems to be across the board. And I think you mentioned in previous podcasts about ANZ um, having their sort of, I don't know what you call it, it's like a human, there's no the automatic um, pre-approvals, right? So... So ANZ are going to be the biggest hit here. So from yeah. my understanding, I don't know everything behind the banking scene, but from my understanding, that whole back office is in India. Yeah. Now, and um, India, Mo- India just get shut down. I mean, we're recording this on the 26th, and, of course, it's going to be the 26th of March. It'll be a little while before it hits the airwaves, so it's going to be a little bit of old news. But um, I think I heard India got shut down on the 25th, as in locked up, locked down. Yeah, so three weeks in India, completely can't leave your home. Now, that's mm. if that, unless they've got their business set up to – run at home most businesses have any especially in these type of countries because of privacy and things like that so i i don't think i think that's going to completely destroy the back office of anz now anz aren't just the only one we've got uh other country uh, companies use like the philippines and um and you know india and all that's, all that's india but you know other countries so, been locked down now for a couple of weeks yeah exactly so in saying that though like there's still banks, for example, like, you know, Macquarie, a lot of it's done by a computer with a, an Australian assessor and a lot of their back office, they're producing their loan docs, they've systemized it online. So they can still turn around, you know, customers in two or three days without the reliance on people overseas. Um, if everyone goes to Macquarie all of a sudden, they're going to get overloaded and that's going to that's going to create another jam in the system. But but I guess what you're saying and the, the purpose of this particular interview is around well, what's some of the benefits of using a broker versus directly with the bank. And this is a really good example of a really unusual situation. But when you've got structural um, problems caused by the way the banks actually resourced themselves and chosen to go offshore versus how they've chosen to set up their back office, as you say, and then 
in some pandemic hits and completely upends and nobody's actually factored this into their risk <laughs> risk analysis. So, so well, you're right because a lot of clients will say, oh, I've just read online, like ING this last night or yesterday came out with a 209 two-year fixed rate, right? So wow. um, 2.09. So that's an amazing two-year fixed rate. Now, we know ING. ING are usually pretty good with turnaround times, but sometimes they blow out. And um, so they can go from two days turnarounds to say 12 days turnaround. So, you know, even if you want that deal, if you're doing a refinance, you can happily wait, you know, I'm happy to sit it out for three or four weeks. It doesn't really matter. Mm. But if I'm doing a purchase, yeah. turnaround times is something you've got to be super across because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is, is miss settlement. Um, and especially with pre-approvals, a lot of clients will say literally last night, a client um, was going to sell a property um, and I said, look, you're pretty crazy to be selling right now and without knowing where you're going to go, um, I'd be trying to buy before you sell because they've already done a sales campaign. But anyway, long story, but I'd be using a relocation loan. Um, now, they've got a place they want to buy, so we've got to then, you know, go and get a relocation loan, explain how a relocation loan works um, and get that done, you know, really fast. So we've got to, that whole process, which has got to be really across turnaround times. Yeah. It's tricky actually because um, I was talking to Jenny Tonner who we interviewed back in episode I think 53 off the top of my head. Now she's a conveyancer. Yeah. She told me last night she's a um, on uh, look and if I get this wrong, um, forgive me, Jenny, um, I think she's a member of the Conveyancing Association or something. They were meeting last night. I was hoping to hear from her before we, we recorded this actually because they're talking about putting a clause in contracts which, which covers an extension to settlement due to coronavirus because, of course, if we do go into lockdown, there's no way in a million years people are going to be able to settle um, because there's, well, A, the Potentially, banks, yeah. Well, the banks are going to be under pressure anyway, let's face it, but but we've also got this situation where um, you can't move. If you're locked down, you can't move physically. So who is going to want to settle on a property that the vendor's still living in? You know, I, I very much doubt that's going to happen. Um, so that's so a good point. Like settlement times yeah. is something that... We uh, is one of the benefits potentially of using a broker. So, you know, a client literally made an offer this week on an apartment in Bondi, actually, at Ramwick. Um, and she's like, Look, can we do a four week settlement? And I was like, Yeah, we can do four weeks. Like, I've got no problems with doing four weeks, knowing where banks are at, knowing what where they're at, etc. The pre approval, the valuation stuff, you know what I mean? So, but, but, but a settlement's going to slow down now. Forget whether we go into lockdown for a minute, because that's going to that will that will make sure that will make settlements stop, right? It'll make everything stop. But forget that for a minute. If the bank, the back end of the bank is slowed down in terms of loan um, application processing, and and from what I understand, there's been a spike in um, applications. I think everyone's taken your advice from last week, Chris, and gone and started putting in their refinance applications. <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, so if the banks are already snowed under with their inquiry or their applications for new borrowing, um, they've already got a capacity problem because their offshoring resources shut down. Um, is that going to impact on their ability to deliver in time to settle? Because I know that... Well, I guess, I mean, potentially, but like if you've got a motivated vendor that needs a fast settlement and you need to find a bank that can deliver a fast settlement, it's possible. Right. It's about... But if you don't know what you're doing and you sign up to a six-week settlement, just assuming that it's going to be okay, you lodge an application with a bank that's turnaround times are blown out because of the way that they work, you could create a point where in six weeks' time you're not ready. So um, if you are signing a contract right now, it's about having that conversation pre-signing up 
understanding where you're going to go for your loan, how much you're going to borrow, is there any issues, you know, where how's that bank sitting right now, how fast can you turn that around, can I hit my six-week settlement or do I need to ask for a clause of 12 weeks or whatever it might be. But, you know, terms and settlement periods is one of your negotiation tools. So if you say, like, I can't do a short settlement, well, sometimes the seller needs a short settlement. So I think it... Um, it's not there yet where you can't settle early because I think that's, you know, you need that up your sleeve. True, but, you know, it's funny over the, the credit crunch, if you like, the slowdown of the access to credit um, and the whole processing of applications that, cha- you know, the processing process of processing, if that makes sense, um, that changed with, um, APRA's measure, uh, you know, the, the tightening of credit uh, a couple of years ago, that slowed down things into the point that previously you could probably even squeeze in a 21-day settlement, but, you know, every broker I spoke to said don't even try less than 28 days. I mean, reality, 42 is really needed. Um, you know, is that going to be Yeah, that was a bit different. That was because banks were doing strange things in terms of they were assessing policy and they didn't know because of the Royal Commission they were freaked out what was being taking on too much risk where there's discretion with applications mm. um, generally banks would probably be a bit more aggressive and would be willing to lend the money that's just what banks do so if there's a gap or something that might not be 100 percent perfect um, they're willing to put an exception on the file and, and push ahead with the application in the royal commission that was not happening especially around living expenses and things like that so if living expenses were on two credit cards were showing ten thousand dollars for the last three months um then you couldn't argue that living expenses are only 6000 and they were one-offs. Like, yeah. So there was all these things where the banks didn't know what to do and the brokers were lodging application and they were getting in gridlock um, because the banks were so scared of the Royal Commission and, and get, doing a wrong thing basically. So it's um, a different scenario in the sense that they've got their processes back underway yeah. and or they've re- reset them or whatever they've done to, to, to refine them and then now it literally would just be purely capacity. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and now it's literally a case of loans aren't getting declined. Like we don't get declined loans anymore. Like if there's a problem with the file, the banker calls you and we talk it through, we get the paperwork through and it gets through. Um, but in the Royal Commission, perfectly good customers were getting were getting declined just because the bank just couldn't look at things logically and were just so risk adverse and were just declining application because it was easier than potentially getting them in trouble, the assessor that is. Um and so, you know, the whole fear was through the whole organisation. And that just wasn't with uh, the big four. That was even banks like Suncorp and a lot of the smaller lenders and et cetera. Yeah, okay. So that makes sense. So obviously, um, so once again, an understanding of, of which bank is likely to be able to get you to settlement sooner if that's necessary, if that adds a benefit to, to your or adds some advantage in terms of your negotiation power. Yeah. Yeah, because once again, I mean, you've got the situation where, you know, if you're dealing with your bank, that's the only policy you've got available to you. Um, there's also, you know, I think too that um, clients who have had a pre-approval, but as we all know, then they're subject to valuation or LVRs and those sorts of yeah. things. And then found afterwards that all of a sudden the LVR rule has changed with the bank's policy or the the bank might have decided that they want their valuations to come in lower, you know. So there's those other policy changes that can impact on their borrowing capacity that that they don't know that has changed since they got their pre-approval and that can actually then impact them at the point at which they're about to make an offer on a property, right? 
Yeah, so 100%. This happened to a client a couple of weeks ago where um, we had him pre-approved with uh, Macquarie and um, purchased a place up in the Northern Beaches, uh, purchased a 2.2. We did a valuation on it and the val, uh, yeah, luckily he had us cooling off um, and he did a valuation on it at 1.975. Now, there's two reasons why the val came in low. One was the assessor was, the valuer was thinking he's a forecaster not actually a valuer um, <laughs> uh, is different, right? And I don't understand how valuers get their job confused sometimes because um, the, <laughs> the previous sales were supporting a $2.2 million purchase price, mm. maybe a little bit under to be in fairness. So maybe he did overpay a little bit out of um, just probably didn't have the market knowledge. Yeah. Um, so I, there was a bit of that and there was a bit of the, the assessor saying coronavirus in their notes and saying fear of coronavirus we think yeah. 1.975, which was ridiculous. Yeah. So we did another valuation with another bank. Valuation came back at 2.2. Mm. Um, now, in, in this situation, the client actually cooled off on this property and purchased another property um, and got a probably potentially a better, and we'll get a better deal. Um, but this is a case where when we got that low val back, if that was if you were dealing directly with the bank and you've just worked with one bank and you have no idea where else to go, what would you do? You would, how do you turn that around in five business days, which is all you've got to get another bank approved, um, which we did. Even less than that, really, because, you know, generally you've got your your exchange um, with the cooling off, you get five business days, you might be able to extend it if there's goodwill on both sides. Um, But but basically the valuation might come in and you've only got 48 hours left. Yeah, Um, it's true, actually. You're right, actually, because we didn't do the valve until that day and then that came back a couple of days later. So you're already two two days into your five days. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then we ordered, as soon as we got the low valve, we... Through experience, we know it's very hard to argue evaluation. So you need a value to prove to say to you that they've done the wrong thing, which and it goes against their KPIs, etc., like that. So in this situation, there's no point in us arguing. We're best off to go see if we can get a solution elsewhere. Yeah. Now we don't do any of it off the plan, but sometimes clients will come to us who have already purchased off the plan, and if we uh, really like them as people and we want to help them and. Um, you know, they really need someone to guide them through the process, then we will, of course, help. And um, this is another case where I definitely, you definitely need a broker if you're buying off the plan because the policies and the banks that will do it at different LVRs and different rates. Um, and if you get a low value, you need to have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. Um, because when you get the occupation certificate or whatever it is, a couple of weeks before you need to move in, um, you need to have a couple of things, you know, a couple of uh, what's the things in the oven? A couple of uh, steel rods in the in okay. the fire. So you know that's where you need to be. So I think, um, yeah, you just that's another place around the valuation, around policy changes. Um, you really need to be across it because end of the day, it's risk management. What you need to do is make sure you settle on this property, and do you really want to be? putting all your eggs in one bank and one personal banker that you may have only met a couple of times that may not even be doing the job when you are, you know, six months time. So yeah, um, the valuation thing is really important because, you know, in days gone by or years gone by, not even days, but years gone by, you could actually get a bank valuation before you exchanged contracts. Yeah. And, and this is what uh, it really irks me because then the bank retains the, the last right of refusal. So they tell a buyer, you know, you've got pre-approval. The buyer thinks that that means that they can borrow X amount of dollars. Um, so say they think that they can spend up to a million dollars on a property. That's 
that's reliant on the valuation coming in at a million or more, right? And so if that valuation comes in at 900,000, they've got it, the bank will only lend them the 80% or whatever of yeah. that 900,000. So then there's a gap to, that they've got to fund. And and a lot of buyers don't realise that they, they're wearing that risk. And we talk through that with, as part of our process to make sure yeah. that our clients have had that conversation with the broker. What are the risks of the valuation coming in low? Where, where are the additional funds that you've got access to? What's plan B, C, et cetera, et cetera. And we have had situations where a broker has not been on top of this and we've actually, after exchange, despite the client being advised that, yes, you, you're right to go and, you know, there's no real risks for you, that then the valuation is coming low. Yeah. And then the brokers are basically out of out of depth and, oh, that's it. And it's like that's you might as well just deal directly with the bank if you've got a broker that's, that's yeah. a, you know, one-trick pony. So we've had situations where we've stepped in very quickly and said, right, you need another broker, you need a better broker, you need a more experienced broker, and that broker needs yeah. to come up with B, C, and D now. And then, you know, we'll work and do what we can do to help provide the valuers that information. So, you know, it, and I'm thinking of one particular case where the client, overseas client, had their own broker, kept it insisting, yes, no, no, this broker's really good, they've been referred to him my friend, et cetera, et cetera. We kept thinking, no, this does not sound right. This broker does not sound like they really know what they're doing. After exchange, desk-based valuation came in really low um, and there was panic stations. So we got them a, a, a much more experienced broker who – um, the next valuation was a drive-by, which was also a little bit low. And then finally he actually got in with a different bank who would do a proper on-site valuation. Yeah. And we met them there and we handed over our research, which they took and they basically came back with the valuation at the price yeah. they paid. But it was a harrowing experience for our client. And it wasn't too comfortable for us either, even though we, we had followed our process to make sure they checked and they did. But it was harrowing. Um, and that was because the broker really gave really crap advice. And, um, you know, and, I, and yeah. I, I mean, look, this is really about why you should deal with a broker versus why you should deal with a bank, but it's also why you should deal with a broker that's very, very experienced. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think the, uh, at a local broker in that state that you, you know, not that we don't, we still help clients, you know, buy in Brisbane and buy in Melbourne, et cetera. But, you know, literally a, a buyer's agent referred me a client a few weeks ago and, um, they're buying in Sydney, buying in all the beaches, and they are using a broker that's based in Brisbane. Now, this broker in Brisbane, they the, the buyer's agent client called me because my buyer's agent, the buyer's agent in this situation was saying, look, I don't think this other broker understands um, 66Ws and cooling off. Oh, and, yeah. And if you, if you, it's one of the parts that we do is when clients are making offers and they have to sign 66Ws sometimes to get a deal done, whether it's pre-option, whether they just want to use it as a negotiation tool to win the deal um you know we've got to really understand the numbers because if if a client does sign a 66w and they can't get the finance they lose their 10 percent deposit which let's just we'll clarify that the 66w certificate in new south wales it's a new south wales um thing it's in no other state and what it is is a certificate that their solicitor or the conveyancer provides that waives the cooling off period so it waives the buyer's rights to a cooling off period it cannot be waived by the buyer it has to be waived by the solicitor or the conveyancer after explaining yeah. the consequences to the buyer. Now, obviously, that means you're buying under auction conditions. So if you're buying a, a property that's 
pre-auction or even if you're buying a private treaty property in a hot market where there's lots of eyes around, well, yeah. I tell you what, most agents and most owners don't want to take their property off the market for five days so that you muck around with your valuations, your building fees, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So and that's the reason for the 66W. Now, really the reason for the 66W actually was it was introduced to actually pre- protect buyers from being gazumped. But in yeah. reality, it gets used as, as a tool by agents in a hot market to make you unconditional so that you can, um, sorry, the cool, sorry, I rewind. The cooling off period, the five day cooling off period was introduced to stop gazumping. All right. Yeah. But yeah. the 66W certificate is used by agents in a hot market to say, well, I'm not going to give you the cooling off period because there's other buyers. So you bring that to me with a 66W and I will take it to the owner because that's a much more compelling offer. Exactly. And, in, in, you know, if I was selling and I've got a whole property and it's running an auction campaign or I've got six people wanting it, I'm only going to sell it to the person who's going to give me an unconditional offer. So yeah. um, and that's the reality. So that's one of the things that we do is helping there. I think. But, but I was about just to step in, but I agree. It's a good litmus test for brokers. And we, in our business, the same thing. It's like if the minute the broker says, oh, that's all right, you know, we'll ask them a pointed question about the risk. You know, how are our clients, how is our client's finance um uh, approval are they ready to go on this one? Oh, well, that's all right they'll get a five-day cooling off period and then we'll sort everything out i said but don't right. you understand i've already told you we're going in unconditional so i need yeah. to know from you what we need to know before they can go unconditional and and when they say that i go you don't know what you're talking about and then i think oh well, here we go back to square one <laughs> yeah it's the same thing with conveyances and solicitors i mean obviously yeah. you mentioned jenny there we do a lot of work with jenny the reason we do a lot of work with jenny is that Jenny always, always does her job correct in terms of really going through a contract, really understanding where the risk lies for the customers and anything that, and then also always stays on top of the paperwork in terms of making sure that um, they're going to get the ready, their ducks lined up so it settles. Whereas yeah. sometimes we work with conveyances and we're, t- we're calling them four or five times, three days before settlement, asking, where's, why haven't you loaded up on PEXA? You know, the documents transfer is not there, et cetera. Um, uh, and they're just too laxy daisy. You need to kind of be building this kind of A team around you, I believe, because yeah. you know, speed is what. And just a sleep at night factor. If you've signed a contract for a two million dollar property, let's say, yeah. um, do you really want to be stressing for six weeks about whether it's going to settle, or do you want to make sure that the people around you have, have got you back and really know what they're doing? Well, um, this is a problem because, of course, most people only buy one or two properties every 10 years you know i mean it, it, it's you you don't really know these pitfalls and risks and i and i often say it really sort of takes a village to buy a property um and this is a, a really good example of it you just mentioned something in there about pexa okay so pexa is relatively new right and not all conveyances are on pexa correct and do you want to explain what pexa is well it's just a, it's just an electronic platform now which is absolutely game-changing for conveyancing and i think a lot of conveyances probably would wish that it's old school. They've been doing it for 20 years. They want to keep going to their paper base, but we need to get up to 2020 and um, basically everything can happen online now. Now there is major benefits of this is because you don't have to go to an office in the city and contract coronavirus or something, but yeah. you know, it'll happen on, on online, but, uh, and also refinances can happen online now. So in time, we will be able to do refinances extremely fast once everything gets digitalized. So yeah. it's just an online electronic platform but so, and, and to explain what the process was before i mean you used to have to get a whole bunch of checks 
a check, you know, to pay out the bank loan, a check yeah. to the other to the vendor, a check to give, um, you know, the council for rates. Yeah, exactly. Sydney Water or the water company. You know, there's all these different payments that, that happen on settlement of a property. They sort of draw a line in the sand and say, right, today you owe, you owe this for rates, you owe that for water, you've got to pay, you know, if there's other sort of levies, strata levies, for instance, if you're in a strata building. So there's all these payments that have to be made. There might be caveats on the on the contract for arguments. Yeah. Or, and so there's this whole schedule of payments that get provided by the vendor solicitor to the purchaser and, yeah. and the purchaser and then the bank arranges largely where this money comes from, right? Um, and yeah, so- this is the thing where we, we you know, part, settlement is one of the things that brokers do do, right? So we will talk clients through around structuring when they first meet. Now, a lot of clients will say, oh, well, I've got, I want to buy a house. I'm just getting round numbers. I want to buy a house at, I don't know, 1.5 and I've got $800,000, right? So I need a loan of $800,000 to cover the gap plus stamp duty. Now, most people would think, well, that makes sense, right? I've got 800. I need 800 to cover the difference plus stamp duty plus costs. Um, but, you know, as a broker, what we would be saying is, well, do you know, should you be borrowing more than 800? Now this, to give you an idea, brokers don't get paid based on, the loan amount, they get paid on the net loan amount um, after offset. So brokers who recommend this aren't just recommending so they can get paid more. But in this situation, what we'd probably say to the customer is, can you have you got the servicing in this situation to borrow 80% on 1.5, so 1.2, then you've only got to put in a 20% deposit, like 300 grand, plus you know another um, 100 grand for your stamp duty and things like that. Um, and then you've got 400 grand in an offset account as a buffer straight away. Yeah. So rather than just borrowing a smaller amount and have no money left over, we'd educate them on the structuring benefits of going, say, 80% and having a big amount in the offset. Now, just this, a lot of clients said, oh, no, I don't need that. You know, I don't need a big buffer, etc." We, <laughs> we would always be very forceful um, because the rate's exactly the same. Now, some changes are happening around this, but because the rates are generally the same at 80% versus 70% um, or 60%, then there was no financial benefit with going with a smaller loan. You were just giving yourself a smaller buffer. Now, this last couple of weeks, a couple of those clients who were self-employed who went down this advice, uh, you know, their revenue has gone to zero. And they've called up and said, look, you know, a bit worried. And I said, well, don't be worried. You've got 300 grand in your offset. Another client, you've got 600 grand in your offset. Now, um, they've got huge buffers set up that's actually years of repayment um, there in, in offset accounts. So structuring of loans, sometimes um, clients will come in and say, look, I'm going to work my, my gut out to get to 20% because I don't want to pay that lender's mortgage insurance. Now, because people don't really understand lender's mortgage insurance and, and how it actually works and where's it actually get really expensive and people just think it's really expensive. They don't actually understand how it gets more expensive. Mm. So a lot of the time, especially when clients are getting very close to that 20% mark, um, sometimes they're buying a cheaper asset just to avoid paying lenders mortgage insurance, which might not be A, a good property or B, the right property for them. Yeah. And then sometimes we're re-educating and saying, well, actually lenders mortgage insurance doesn't get that expensive unless you borrow more than 88%. So why don't you consider just using a 12% deposit um, and then, and then 5% for stamp duty, so that's 17%, not trying to get to 25%, which is what you've been kind of slugging away for. And then you'll still have a buffer left over. And the mortgage insurance is only X, um, and it's an investment property, let's say, so it's tax deductible over five years. So structuring of loans is a big part of it as well, and making sure that 
the customer is really aware of where can they really stretch to, what is the cost of that, making and then having a flexible budget, not just basing their budget on how much deposit they've got. Um, yeah, that's the thing about like when we interviewed David Johnson, you know, your old boss of property planning, Australia, yeah. and he did talk about um, mortgage strategy or borrowing strategy, and that's exactly yeah. what we're talking about here, isn't it? And But not all brokers can do that either, can they? Um, and so, uh, look, I would hazard that you're probably not going to get that from a bank. Would you get that from a bank? No. So literally a client bought, um, so he's a friend of my sister's, um, might be listening, but he uh, been wanting to win him as a client for many years um, and uh, he's originally, he's dealing with uh, CBA Private Bank. Now, he came to me, he said, look, I've just purchased this place. Uh, it's quite an expensive house. And I said, look, look, we need to talk strategy. So, uh, you know, you've got a couple of other properties he's saying he's going to sell to fund this new property. And I'm like, this is pre-corona. This is about six weeks ago. I said, look, you need to make protect yourself in case you don't sell these properties at auction um, and you, or you get offers that don't aren't what you want. Um, but he says, oh, I've got it all sorted in private banking and said, no, no, let me let me give you what our best strategy is. So we gave a whole strategy about keeping the properties, how is he going to do it, fund it, et cetera, um, just in case he can't sell them. You know, just, I mean, this is not pat on our back at all, but then the world changed, right? And now he can't sell those two properties and he doesn't want to sell them. Um and so it's the strategy part that's the valuable there. Now, we've ended up getting the same rates as what he's getting at CBA. So rates are not usually a problem for brokers. They generally can always win on rate So because there's always a better bank on rate. Can you but, actually use a broker to get a better deal with your existing bank? You can. I mean, you can go down the whole route and speak to a broker and then leverage all their hard work and then take that to your bank and say, look, my broker offered me 2.08, can you match it? And then the broker didn't get... You didn't work with the broker there. The broker didn't get paid. I know it's many so, the way around where where you go to the broker and you still work with the broker, but the broker put, puts a deal together with your existing bank. 100%. So literally a client at the moment, uh, he's at CBA um, and there's literally no reason for us to leave CBA because, you know, the, A, he's getting a really good rate and he's already got the loan there and so we need to get cash out so he can buy an investment property. So... But when we did the numbers, we we're like, you know what? Let's just keep your current loan CBA. Let's refinance there, get enough money for the deposit, and then we'll go do a pre-approval somewhere else for the next property because we need to use a bank that's got, you know, a bigger servicing capacity. Even the CBA are usually quite good. So, um, yeah, hundred percent. We do work with if if the customer situation, their current bank is their best bank, then why would we go anywhere else? Um, and sometimes we what we do is we'll send pricing there to sharpen the rate up there to avoid them having to do a refinance especially when they need to turn around things fast um, because, you know, to do a refinance, you're talking probably eight weeks till you've got the money on the other side. Um, and sometimes clients can't wait eight weeks till they get the deposit ready for an investment property, let's say, or yeah. if they want to do a renovation, um, they want the money today. They don't want to wait eight weeks for it. So, um, yeah, we always work with their current bank. Interesting. And so do you think there's ever a time when it actually is better for a client to deal directly with the bank versus dealing with a broker? Uh, potentially. Um, you know, if you're someone who prefers to walk into a branch and, you know, and you want that real confidence of that branch around you and you feel safer that way, some demographics and some generations would, would prefer that. Um, you know, like we don't have a branch. We are a small business. You're dealing with a... Uh, you know, you can't just walk in and, and see me, you know, but I'm on the phone. But, you know, some people would prefer that, um, the comfort of knowing they can walk in and talk to someone. But the reality is if we did a loan with that bank, you could still get there. But 
you know, that's that's sometimes people I assume would use go direct to the bank, and that's been proven through surveys and things like that. Um, but brokers do about sixty percent of loans now, so we're not a new industry, and that was thirty percent. You know, so that was zero at one point, but every year the broker share of loans goes up, yeah. and um, you know, it was fifty percent say five years ago, so it's jumped ten percent. Now this is why in the Royal Commission the banks try to kill brokers. So but in particular, CBA went to try to kill brokers because CBA know that they've lost the fight to brokers because consumers are happy with brokers. There's very few complaints about how mortgage brokers and consumers compared to other financial services. Um, and every year their, their market share grows. Now, there are great brokers, there's average brokers and there's poor brokers, but that's in every industry. And most loans go through the good brokers, you know, 80%, 80-20 rule sort of thing. So... Um, yeah, I think that the consumers have already made their decision and are using brokers. There's not really a reason why you would be better off to go to the bank. Now, sometimes um, there are banks that won't work with brokers, like online lenders. Now, if, for example, you bank, loans.com.au, um, TikTok, uh, some other ones, I'm trying to think, but there's these kind of online lenders. Now, if you know that you qualify there, you're willing to do the paperwork you understand the risks of working with that place, um, especially if it's a purchase. Refinances, you probably, Athena is another one. Um, you, you will probably find that their rates are slightly better than potentially what brokers can get at some times. So potentially if you're looking for the optimal rate and you don't want any advice or any service or any guidance, then maybe you're best to use an online lender um, if you're willing to, and, and you understand the risks of doing that. So that's another reason why you might not want to use a broker. Uh, and on the online lenders, uh, is that normally price-driven? Yeah, it's always price-driven. Generally, that's the only benefit. And generally, there's always a bank in the broker toolkit that can be very close to what they're offering. There's always a bank that's willing to be that desperate to get business that will be very close to what those online lenders will, will, will want to um, offer. You know, like Citibank will offer a 2.49 variable rate, which is the same as those banks, you know, or Suncorp or, you know, there's always a bank there that are just offering a really good rate to brokers. But sometimes they're not the best bank because the policy is not great. And a lot of these online lenders, they get their funding off from wholesale lenders. Basically, the bank will give them a funding line of, say, $100 million or a billion, Um and those funding lines can get pulled or changed on them or be limited. And one of the things that's happening right now is the big four banks have got very cheap funding because RBA is basically flooding them with cash right now to keep the system going. But a lot of these smaller lenders, Bluestone, for example, Pepper, um, Athena's got super funds, their funding lines can get cut and get increased very quickly. And in the GFC, a lot of the smaller and second tier and non-banks their rates bounced up a lot more than the big four. And so there's risks of going with these online lenders sometimes because if their funding line changes, their rates change. And so you got in there and you thought you were getting a super cheap rate, but that the things have changed now. And that's unlikely to change like that at a bigger lender because you've got millions and millions of customers that would, you know, kick up a fight and be on today, tonight. <laughs> so would you say, like if you had an elevator pitch, what's the elevator pitch for the benefit of someone to use a broker over uh, going directly with the bank, just to sum all this up. So, I mean, fundamentally, if your broker's just offering you a rate, then 
you know, they're just they're not really a, a great broker in my view. If 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 you sit down and say and you and as a customer, you're kind of asking if you ask the wrong questions of brokers and you go in there with the wrong expectation, you're going to get the wrong service. So if you go in there and say, look, what's the best rate you can get me? Well, they're going to give you the best rate, but really a good broker is going to do a lot more than just offer your rate and won't even think about rate. Um, you know, for example, let's see why we had to delete this uh, podcast this morning, you know, a client referred a new client. Um, I just chatted to her and a, a, her partner about what, you know, where they're going in life, what are they thinking, what are they going to do with this property they're building up in Newcastle, they've got a 25% share with another family member, um, you know, what's their plans with that one, are they going to buy a house, they're renting. Like so we talked through their whole life and where they're going um, and then we started to talk about, well, what's their structuring of their loans, where their loans are and what are their rates. So good brokers focus on getting the structure right and get the, get the loan to match their longer-term plans and then they go shopping and they say, okay, so this is what we want. What bank will do it at a really good rate? So you kind of put, you're putting it the other way around. If you focus on rate. You know what, I love how I asked you for an elevator pitch. Yeah. <laughs> We're <laughs> well, in a, a very, very tall building here. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. It's 120 stories. So, so um, focus on rate. What's the next thing? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's probably your major one. I just think structuring. if you get a broker that's really good at understanding structuring and banks, um, you know, I'm not here saying I'm the only good broker in Australia. There's plenty of good brokers, right? Uh, and there's plenty of very experienced brokers. And most of those good ones understand the complexities around structuring. Um, and if you've got one of those, then you're, you're onto a winner. Like it, you really are. And if you're ever worried about the rate with them, ask them, you know, is there a better deal? What can we do? And, you know, they'll always have an option for you and they'll, they'll be there. So, um, but just... If you go to a branch and you go to a broker and they just start talking around rate, I just think keep shopping. Um, you know, they're not there really kind of guiding you on what you really need to do. So, John. Oh, can I throw one more in? Yep. I honestly do think, and this is where I do think I'm a bit of a black sheep in the broking world, I do think a broker who has knowledge and experience helping potentially thousands of customers has some understanding what's a good property and what's not a good property. It's, Ooh, I, I, mean, I talk to brokers that to, to deal with thousands of customers and I honestly tell you I would not rely on that at one little bit. No, and I don't think that's because they, have, they haven't taken the time because what it is, it's a slowdown to the transaction because and – Reality is, it's the line of least resistance. So, if you're working in a service and and or a and you're trying the for brokers, it's loans. Then all they really want to do is to fasten up that transaction. So most brokers will not stop and ask you questions about the type of property you're buying, why you're buying that, how does that fit into your longer term plan, you know, do you understand the risks of buying new property? Most brokers won't want to have that conversation because it slows down the transaction. But also, now, most brokers wouldn't even understand the questions to ask or the implications if they're, if they're just siloed in terms of just dealing with transactions and they don't actually pull back and have a look at the whole life cycle, if you like, of a, of a property ownership, then it's sort Broker of... Broker doing for five years have seen these transactions. They've, they've, their clients, they've seen their clients go buy and off the plan and had a low vow. They've seen five years later that property is worth the same because they've done another vow on it. Right, yep. My, my bugbear with the broking industry is that brokers don't take responsibility for helping their clients make better property decisions. Now... Because they can see the data. Like right. they, when, when you have a customer come in and they say, oh, I've got that investment property, okay, where is it? 
when did you buy that? Okay, it's in southeast Queensland. I bought it in two thousand six. What did you pay for it? Three twenty. What's it worth now? Three forty. Okay. How how did you how did you buy that property? Oh, I spoke to. Yeah, yes, but it's positively geared, etc. And then the broker doesn't say, "Well, has actually made you any money?" You know, etc. And so that's where. I think that that's our niche and it is, reality is, there's not many brokers that have come from financial planning into broking um, mm. and have made that their sole focus. They might still do super, they might still do et cetera. Like our focus is 100% on that property guidance. Um, but I do think brokers need to get better there. I do think their first home buyers don't go to financial planners because they want to buy a house. So yeah. their biggest and most important financial decision um, they don't go to buyers agents because they don't even know what they exist. They exist. They can't afford, uh, and they can't afford. So they go to a broker. That's their first person in a financial sense that they're dealing with, or they might go directly to the bank. Now, I don't expect banks to go down this because they're, you know, banks there sell products. So I don't expect banks to start becoming property experts and um, guiding people on property decisions. They're just there to sell you a mortgage. But a brokers, I think, they need to get better at this because. Um, if you, you know, if you're not helping that first home buyer make a big and a sound property decision, that is the one decision that's going to have the biggest impact on them in the next five or ten years, and then compounding over the rest of their life. Yeah, making a good first buy versus a, a poor first buy. And this is something that I'm very, very passionate about, and it's why we're launching Home Buyer Academy um, yep. to help first home buyers because they can't afford a buyer's agent because most of them do turn to a broker as, as you say, the first port of call. They don't necessarily have an accountant. They don't, they, you know, not likely to have a financial planner. The problem is a lot of financial planners don't know anything about property either, and they'll actually talk yep. them out of it. Um, a lot of accountants will say, "Oh, well, you got a tax problem, so you need to, to negative. He go and buy this brand new property." Um, yep. A lot of mortgage brokers, a lot of all three of those actually get incentivized by developers to actually encourage their clients to buy these properties, these off the plan properties that don't perform over time. And yeah. so I just want to just step in here and go, we're very careful by saying that brokers need to be giving advice around this. So I think what I would like to say is I 100% agree with you in terms of a smart broker would sit down and look at the data and say, well, there's evidence here that some properties do well over time and some don't. And yeah. we need to understand better what those differences are. And you as a, as a potential borrower or as a borrower and a potential seller need to understand and look at this data and, and the relativity of it so that you can actually make more informed decisions. And, and so I 100% agree with you on that. But the problem is there is already too much advice, property advice being given by people who are not qualified in property. So whilst I agree that brokers do need to play a, a more um, more of a part in looking at that data yeah. and actually helping people make better decisions, we've got to be very careful about how much of that is property advice. Exactly. So this is where, as a business, we've got a line where we don't cross, right? So we have to, uh, I've gone, you know, since I met, I mean, the first buyer's agent I met was Kate Bakos, right, back in 2012. And since then, I've pretty much, you know, met most buyer's agents. And if I haven't met you and you want to have a chat, let's have a chat. Because, uh, and I've gone and tried to build that network. Because if a client is buying a property, wherever that might be, whether it's the South Coast or whether it's Brisbane or Perth, um, there's people I've met and I, I know that can help them. And as a broker, I am not in terms of forceful, but I've seen the value so many times now through so many transactions of the benefits of buyer's agents that I will really recommend them to actually go and consider and meet a buyer's agent that's a specialist in that area and buys that type of asset 
to experience and to understand their value proposition. Now, not all clients will use buyer's agent. In fact, one client recently I lost, uh, he went to, uh, doesn't want to work with me basically. And I think the real reason is, is that he could afford a buyer's agent. He was buying, he was not uh, any experience buying, you know, property at two to $3 million before. He was very uh, all over the place in terms of his strategy, in terms of where he was thinking. He was thinking one minute in a West, next minute up a North. Um, didn't really understand anything around negotiation and agents and just thought he could pull off this big financial decision without any help. And I kind of said, look, mate, you really should be using a buyer's agent. You've got the cash. You, you know, you are not going to regret it. And he, he, I think, and that was the reason why he decided not to work with us. So yeah, I think you're right. Got in the way. <laughs> and I, and I, it doesn't really matter to us. You know, end of the day, we're, we're doing really well as a business and it's, it, it is what it is. I'd rather just give the advice and they, they don't take it, they don't take it. But in that situation, he should have used a buyer's agent. And I don't know whether he's bored or not because we're not working together, but in, in this situation, because I agree with you, where the problem is, brokers try to look for additional revenue streams mm. because they're like, well, I've got all these customers. They all want to buy property. Maybe I can earn more money if I start to refer them to people to make money. And this is where they start referring to developers. They start referring to off the plan or they start trying to charge for their property advice um, and provide all this research that supports poor investments. Mm. Um, so I, I agree with you. Brokers need to be careful of that, but it's about cutting the line and then referring it to independent sort of buyers agents that are specialists in the areas that your your clients want to buy. But it's hard work building up all those relationships. It is. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and are a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Veronica, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yes, I've got a dumbo. I've got a dumbo that sort of came about after a conversation with Jenny Tonner yesterday. And that was she was talking about some clients that have actually bought. They bought a few weeks back when the market was going gangbusters. Clearance rates were 80% only a few weeks ago. Um they, they bought without having bridging pla- uh, finance in place and so they bought with a longer settlement, both thinking that they had the ability to sell their property and then negotiate a simultaneous settlement with their buyers. And so they're in a world of pain now trying to work out how they're going to coordinate and orchestrate simultaneous settlements in the world of coronavirus when all of a sudden open houses have been shut down, auctions are shut down, Um they, you know, they're under pressure then to sell at a cheap price so that they can actually just settle. Um, so they put themselves under ridiculous pressure. But not only that, if there is a new clause that goes into a contract that allows for de- um, delays to settlement due to coronavirus, well, it will be on their sales contract but not on their purchasing contract. So they will no doubt incur penalties for the property they purchase whereas the buyer if they do manage to to get their property sold um uh you know with the time frame that they've put themselves under then that buyer may not have the same penalty uh imposed on them so they could absolutely get themselves in a world of pain so i think that's enormous dumbo yeah i mean it's just about understanding uh you know joint uh settlements on a buy and a sell um you really need to be careful that you really understand the person you're selling to is able to settle on that day that you want to settle um, and that they uh, got their ducks lined up because they also have to get their finance ready for that day. And so 
you know, if they haven't got a good broker, the person buying your property and they're not ready, they, can, they easily could uh, send you a notice the day before settlement and say, uh, oh, you know what, we can't settle, our bank's not ready. And, and so... The risk is enormous. <laughs> well, then they have to start paying penalty interest on the buy. Yeah. And then they, they get penalty interest on the thing. But then if you get to two weeks later and then they don't settle because um, they couldn't get the finance, um, then they... Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and so you are... You've got to understand these risks. Now, life is full of risks. Um, we know that now more than ever. But the reality is it's just about understanding what the risks are before you go into a transaction, not just going in there with those rose-coloured glasses and just assuming she'll be right, mate, because when we're talking the biggest financial decisions of your life probably, um, big like one little mistake could potentially unwind hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, um, you know, I've seen it all before. You know, we've seen people walk into off the plan. I've got a client at the moment and we did everything uh, everything we can to stop her buying this apartment off the plan. Um, multiple conversations. Um, she was extremely frustrated with, um, you know, missing out at a couple of auctions and a friend has sold this off the plan. Now, uh, she is still got a job and she's going to settle in a couple of months, but this she signed this before coronavirus. Now, I'm hoping, you know, touching wood, everything's okay with her employment, but you know, what happens if she loses her job over the next two months before this place settles and she's got to settle in two months and she can't actually buy it? She's going to lose her 10% deposit. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of people be in this position now where they thought they had a job and they'd have a job. There's no reason why they would lose their job and they've got to settle on and off the plan in the next couple of years. There's still 100,000 apartments still getting built in Sydney. So just, just understanding your risks um, that if you don't know your risks and you don't understand them, then you're just opening yourself up to a can of worms. Right. Well, that wraps up our interview of Chris to work out why you should deal with a broker rather than directly with a bank. Thank you very much for your time, Chris. Thank you, Veronica. I'll see you around. See you around. Well, we won't see you around. We'll be on this uh, remote recording for a while. So sorry about the sound quality, everybody. I know it's not quite yeah. in the studio, but, hey, we prefer to bring you good content as we continue towards lockdown. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is? So, I mean, Veronica has asked me to say what the questions you should ask a broker. Now, you know, I think the most important thing is really focusing on the structuring of the advice um, and how much the broker cares about it and, and what sort of structuring strategies the broker has. Now, if they don't have any, they don't even know what you're talking about, um, I think that's a problem, you know, because they should have lots of different strategies. You know, what's their attitude around fixing versus variable? Um, you know, do you fix all your loan or do you keep some variable? Now, that's a common mistake I've seen brokers make where they fix all the loan and they don't keep any variable, then you can't offset it. So there's certain things around structuring, I think. If you ask a broker what's their best rate, anyone can print off a rate sheet. We've all got it. We've all know exactly, can tell you what the best owner-occupier rate or the best three-year fixed rate. You as a customer could type that into Google and find it out. So those things are not going to teach you anything about whether the broker is good or not. Learning about their structuring. And then personally, I know Veronica's and I've you know debated this one, but asking you what's their view on different types of property. You know, do you think they should buy off the plan? You know, do you think, um, you know, et cetera, those sort of things and getting their experience. Now, most brokers do send banks to a uh, business to lots of banks as well. So I would ask them just to explain a few different banks that they've used recently and why did they use them for those customers? And most brokers should be able to rattle that off in seconds because it's no big deal. 
Please join us for our next episode when we have a first, and this first is a joint venture podcast. We're co-hosting with Michael Yardney, who's a property expert and has a national business around the country. We're going to talk about COVID, of course, but we're also going to talk about the different ways people can respond to changes in the market, to uncertainty in the market. And what I think is really interesting is if there's 